This morning we're going to spend the majority of our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14-17. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And if you would like to, you're welcome to take that home. We'd love to give that to you. If you don't know where 2 Corinthians is found, the very front of that Bible, there's going to be a table of contents, and you can open that up, and it'll, it'll let you know where to find 2 Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14-17. Now, for those of you who have kind of been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, our, our members or frequent attenders, you'll know that we're in the midst of our identity series, and so we've been taking a look over the last couple of weeks of what it looks like for us as a church to be a church that is kind of growing in our faith, encouraging others to grow likewise, serving in our giftedness, and then today we're going to look at what it means to go with the gospel. So it's incredibly important, I think, especially as we transition back here, to have this understanding that that we don't have a a location-centered gospel, that our gospel is outward in its focus and outward in its trajectory, that there is this, this kind of understanding that if you are a Christian, if you're a person who identifies with Jesus, then you are a person commissioned to go. And so Jesus' final words to his disciples there in Matthew 28 give us this clear picture of what this looks like. He said in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we have this understanding that we are to be about the business of going. The assumption in that passage is that we are to make disciples in the midst of our going. And so we're to, 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 to go forth with the gospel. As we look at this passage here in 2 Corinthians, we recognize that the gospel is going forth with us because by virtue of kind of who you are in Christ, the gospel is going forth with you. People should observe, they should see you and say, oh, I, know, I know Jeremy, he's a Christian, right? And you're like, oh, oh yeah, why do you know that? And like, There's just something markedly different about him. Oh, I, know, I know Barry, I know Julie, I know John, I know Ginger. I know these people and I can see the gospel in them. And according to this passage, they can smell the gospel in you. Well, some of you, they just smell something and that's not the gospel, but that's <laughs> another sermon for another day. But as we look at 2 Corinthians, we see this stunningly beautiful passage that those entrusted to carry the gospel are the broken, that those entrusted to carry the gospel are the weak, and that those entrusted to carry the gospel are the feeble. And this is who we are. We are the broken. We are the weak. And we are the feeble. Read with me in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. Paul writes, and he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. And he asks this question, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Maybe you're in the same place I am. The first time I read this passage and just looked through it, there's this triumphalist sense that you come from reading this passage. And so all the past parades and everything that you've ever been a part of come flooding into your mind. And so maybe you've done the 4th of July parade there on Park Street. It's this amazing thing, right? And so you've got the band, you've got the walkers, you've got the bike, uh, people riding bicycles, you've got people 
on motorized things. You've got the classic car crew, and everybody's just marching down Park Street towards the end, and it's this, this kind of overwhelming sense of patriotism, this, this overwhelming smell of summer and, and barbecue and, and heat. And so everybody's just kind of all there, and we're all headed in the same direction. And so we tend to think that, man, we are a part of this. We're all marching towards something. Or maybe you've been a part of, of a parade and you got to ride in the float and so you're up there and you've been practicing the wave and this is you. Hello, 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 hello. Oh, wrist, hello, hello. And so this is, this is kind of your identity. This is what you think of when you think of a parade. And so you read this and you say, that's right, he's going to lead us in triumphal procession. This is me on the float. This is me at the head of the line. This is me with everybody looking at me. This is normal. This is, this is kind of our expectation because our understanding and our engagement with parades is lar- largely this way. It's largely this experience. But this is not what Paul's talking about. The idea of triumphalism is so far removed. The, the idea that we're riding on the head float, the idea that we're there and everybody's waving at us and smiling at us is so far removed from this passage. And I would say so far removed from the experiences of most of us in our lives. Not many of us are praised, not many of us are adored, not many of us are looked up to. And so when we come into passages that appear to be triumphal in nature, we say, where am I in this passage? Where is my life in this passage? Where is the brokenness in my past? Where is the brokenness in my present? Where am I to find myself in this passage? I would say you find yourself in Christ. So as Paul writes to those in Corinth, this here, his second letter recorded in the New Testament for us, what we found is that he's still in some sense defending his ability to speak authority into their lives. He's still defending his ability to uh, kind of speak with some sense of authority to them there. And he's encountered some difficulty as chapter 2 has opened up and, and, and we find that his plans have changed. And so things were going well, and then his plans changed, and so he writes to them, and he says, even in the midst of changed plans, even in the midst of difficulty, thanks be to God. And so Paul sets for us our mind's eye, he sets for us and tunes our heart to how to respond to God in the midst of difficulty. And this God, he thinks, look what he says about him. He says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So if it's not some 4th of July parade, if it's not some triumphal parade, what is it? See, what Paul's talking about was something that would have been uh, commonplace or everybody would have known about it. And so he's talking about parades that could last days. And, 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 and as a part of this parade, the one who was celebrated was the general riding into town. And so we'd see this large uh, parade headed into Rome. And so in it, the general would be in a chariot, either pulled by horses or occasionally pulled by uh, elephants. And most of those marching wouldn't be soldiers applauding and saying, look at what our general did, or look at what we did with our general. But what he's talking about in this procession are all those who have been captured. All those who formerly fought against the general, all those who were formerly at war against the general, who are now captured and subdued, and he's leading them in this triumphal march, this triumphal procession, so their presence testifies to the victory of the general. This is what he's saying. He's saying when all of these prisoners are walking and they're all marching and they're all being led in the midst of there, their presence testifies to the greatness of the general, not their greatness. Their presence testifies to his sure victory, and their presence testifies to their crushing defeat. 
You see, us in our sinfulness, us in our waywardness, has been overcome with the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we were dead and lost in our trespasses and sins. It tells us that we were wandering in the dark and he found us and has brought us to the light. It tells us that he has taken that which is dead and made it alive. And we're in this, and and we're marching with him in the midst of this procession, in the midst of this parade. We recognize that this is what the gospel looks like. It's that God has joined us in this life so that we can testify to his goodness, testify to his grace. This is very much what Jesus was communicating to the disciples in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, 24 and 25, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Following Jesus in the midst of this triumphal procession is all about losing your life in him. Surrendering your autonomy, surrendering victory, being willing to pursue Christ is taking up his cross, and it's following him along this path. So Paul writes, and you would say, but, but, but Paul, like you're, in some sense, a, a character of note, or a person of note there in the first century. Like when you spoke, people listened, and when you communicated, everybody got quiet, and everybody wanted to tune in and hear what you had to say, because you communicated the gospel. You have seen the risen Lord. Paul writing of himself, writing of the other apostles in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, said of them, he said, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Can I tell you that God is leading us? God is guiding us. But our role and our place in this procession, in this parade, is always to point to the good thing that he's done in making us captive to righteousness. The Bible tells us in Romans 6 that we were formerly enslaved to sin. That sin was our master, that we could pursue nothing else, that we pursued it with our whole heart, and it was always set our eyes upon But the goodness of God has come in and found us and rescued us and redeemed us. And we move from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. So in the midst of this parade, in the midst of God's goodness, we constantly declare Jesus alone is victor. He alone is worthy. So all direction, all attention, all focus that we receive on us, we redirect and point it back to Jesus and say that he alone is worthy of all praise. That God alone is the one worthy of all worship. So what's our involvement? If this is a prayer and and seemingly we've we've been thrust into this, that we were happy in sin, we were happy being lost, we were happy in the dark, and we've been thrust in the middle of this, what is our place, what is our direction, what is our course? Well, he gives us the answer. He says this is what he's doing. He Through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So we get the sense that God is always about this and that he's doing it everywhere. 
Everywhere, nowhere is off limits. Your home is not off limits for the goodness of our Lord. Your, your workplace is not off limits for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your vacation is not off limits for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your internet presence is not off limits for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he calls us to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So what does this look like? In a very real sense, the image that Paul is conveying says, look, when this, when this processional comes through, when, when this triumphal thing happens... Everybody has a sense of the smell of this thing coming through. They would burn incense so everybody could know by, by just observing it with their noses that this thing was happening, that this thing was coming through town. This is what Paul says of Christians. When someone engages you, when someone meets you, they should smell the gospel on you. They should. Any significant time spent with a Christian... If you're a lost person, any significant time spent with a Christian, a person whose heart is owned by Jesus, whose past is forgiven by God in Jesus, any significant time spent with them, you should observe something different. Not judgmentalism. Not highbrow righteousness. Not standoffishness. You should not feel judgment. You should not feel hate. You should feel the acceptance and beauty and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the only good thing they've got. It's the only good thing they've got. And as it's the only good thing they got, as it's the only amazing thing happening for them, they should not be able to shut up about it. They should be like the people who sell Amway, right? They just, they shouldn't be able to show, I have an amazing business opportunity to tell you about, but like, this is how we should be with the gospel. I have this amazing thing I should tell you about. And you know what their response should be? I know you do. I can sense it on you. I can see how your religion, how your Christianity, how your engagement with Jesus is markedly different than anybody else I've ever encountered. Because you've spent time with Jesus. Notice he says that the fragrance of the knowledge of him, not the knowledge or the fragrance of us. Our God's glorious gospel is expansive. The amazing thing we find in this is that he takes captives and he makes them so wildly passionate about himself is that when we engage lost people, they see God in us. Can this be said of you? Can this burden be seen in you? Can it be felt in you? Paul goes on and he, he talks about who we are in verses 15 and 16. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And then he says, this is what these two groups are like. He says, To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. We are the aroma of Christ to God. And notice he talks about two groups, and these groups are, are in the process of something happening to them. So if you, if you would say today that you are a follower of Jesus, you would say, look, for me and for my family or for me and, and my life, this is what I know to be true, that God has spoken everything into existence, that humanity rebelled against this good God, that this good God sent his son Jesus to redeem or to bring back humanity to himself, and he did this through his good son's death burial and resurrection if this is the testimony of your heart if this is what you believe if this is how you live you are being saved it's continual 
The good work he began in you, he is faithful and sure to continue. Man, there is great news in the gospel, but there is ongoing hope in the gospel because we begin to look at our lives in, in, in sense of the temporary setbacks and the temporary failures and just know that those temporary setbacks, if you are a Christian, is not who you are. You are being saved. So God is going through, and, and, and by his grace and by his mercy, when he finds you not living up to, to his perfect will and to his perfect word, is stripping that stuff off of you. And by virtue of his Holy Spirit, at work in your heart is redeeming you and making you whole. He has won you to the gospel. He is keeping you in the gospel, and he is saving you still. But we look at the other side of it. Two groups. Same aroma. The aroma of the gospel, the smell of the cross. One smells it, responds to it, and dedicates their life to Jesus. The other smells it, senses it, hears about it, and turns away. One is being saved, and the other is perishing. Today, it's perishing. And at some point in the future, if nothing else changes, it'll move from being this perpetual state of perishing to a final full state of being completely removed from the love of God forever and ever. So Paul describes them. He says to one, it is a fragrance from death to death, and the other, a fragrance from life to life. And this is in a, just a very real sense what it is to encounter the cross Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Some of us encounter the gospel. We encounter the cross. You hear about this creator God who spoke all things into existence. You hear about this creator God that you have personally rebelled against. You have sinned against. And you hear about his gracious invitation of Jesus. And you say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's ridiculous. I don't understand how these things could work. I don't understand why this good God will come close to me. I have want nothing to do with the gospel. I think the whole thing is bunk. That's what Paul says. He says the one who is perishing looks at the cross and says it's folly. It's, it's silliness. It's nonsense. It, it just makes no sense why God would seek to redeem the world this way. I don't understand. But he turns. He says, but for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one of two responses you can give to the gospel. There is no neutrality to the gospel. And so when we encounter it, and when we, when we encounter it, we have to answer, yes, I'll submit, or no, I refuse to submit. And as people who are going with the gospel, we have to be painfully clear on this. There is no middle way to the gospel. You know, I have some kind of middle way friends, people who I'm not quite, you know, really good friends with, but, but, I, but I don't dislike them to the point where I would avoid them. And, and so these are kind of my middle way people. They're the, hey, how are you? Yeah. Hey, how are you? But there is no opportunity to do this with the gospel. There's no opportunity to delay our response to the gospel. And my fear is that sometimes this is who we are, and this is how we respond as Christians extending the gospel with this middle-way approach that has no urgency, that has no sense that there are people who are perishing, and, and, and we are here sitting being saved. There's an urgency to the gospel. 
there's a weightiness to the gospel that for us in our lives we carry the ability, the ability to communicate a message that could represent the difference in someone's eternity. Sit in that for a second. Think about that for a second. Think about your own personal handling of the gospel. Think about your own personal dispensing or communicating of the gospel. And just begin to think. Like, if I really believe these things, if I really think these things are true, and, 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 I, think, and, and, I, and I think that the Bible communicates this, that without Jesus, people are destined for hell. This is where they're going. And as a Christian, I have the words of hope. My life has been changed, and I know what can change the trajectory of their lives from being lost to being found. If you're a Christian, I think you would say that, man, I think these things are in the Bible. It seems to be that Jesus is pretty passionate about people coming to know him, that God seems to be about the lost. If you know this, but it motivates no change in you, do you really believe it? The gospel is not primarily about saving your life and your eternal security and your eternal resting place. The gospel is all about infusing God's power in people who are saved so that they can communicate his gospel to others, spreading his aroma. Spreading his word. And you can tell that Paul thinks this is weighty. You can tell that he, that he thinks this is just overwhelming because he asked this question who is sufficient for these things? So I'm reading over this this week, and I'm just really struggling with this text because I recognize the inadequacy in my heart in urgently and compassionately and winsomely communicating the gospel. And, and, and I see in, uh, in us as a church, and I see it in us in our community, in the churches of our community, the lack of urgency and burdensomeness of it. And what really just hosed me, what really just, really just kind of frustrated the snot out of me, and I was looking at textual notes thinking, maybe this isn't original to the text. It's the fact that Paul is burdened by it. Paul looks at the eternal consequence of how men and women respond to the gospel. And reflecting on his role in this and our role in this, he asks this damning question, who is sufficient for these things? So I'm sitting in my office just thinking, <laughs> I'm not. And there are very few people who are sufficient for these things. Who I would say are just, just spreading the fragrance of Jesus, the aroma of Christ. But look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. Let me pull you from the ditch of despair. Paul writes, and he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So we recognize if our sufficiency is in checking off, I've had five gospel conversations this week, or I've had seven gospel conversations this week, or I have, I have led 50 people in, in, in some concocted sinner's prayer that you used this year. If this is where you find your sufficiency, recognize this, that's not where it's at. If this is where you find your worth, your sense of validation, or your goodness before God, those things are empty idols. Where do we find our sufficiency? 
find it in him. You see, we're not sufficient in ourselves to claim as anything coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. So there are several different reasons why we don't communicate the gospel. There are several different reasons why we don't go. One is we look at our lives and we say effectively this, the gospel was sufficient to save me, but the baggage I drag behind me and how it occasionally encircles my life is, is more powerful than the gospel that saved me, and it is powerful enough to keep men and women from coming to faith in Jesus. I am a detriment to the gospel, and that's why I don't share. That's why I don't communicate. That's why I don't share the gospel. Recognize this. You are insufficient, but he is not. You recognize the whole thing, that we are captives. He's leading us in triumphal procession, that we are those who are lost, who have been found. We are those who are dead and have been made alive. He makes you sufficient. Your story is a story of redemption. Your present is a story of God's sanctification, his continual working within you. He is not done. He is not finished. And so every time you have an opportunity to communicate the gospel, you're not communicating some static decision that you made in the past. You're communicating a way of life lived in the present. He saved you. He's saving you still. And through your words and through the gospel communicated through your mouth, he desires to save yet still more. None of us are too broken. It's the whole thing. God uses broken, feeble, and weak people to testify to his goodness. This is why we're so compelled and so drawn when we meet somebody who was, was a drug addict and they've turned their lives around, or somebody who's done horrible things and they turn their life around. And, and, and we hear the story of God's grace and we're compelled and drawn into the story and drawn into their tale. Why? Because we recognize the aroma of Christ in their story. Where you're at in your story. Where you're at in your saga is a testimony of God's goodness and his perseverance leading you from death to life and keeping you alive. Paul finishes. Verse 17, and, and he, what he wants to do is to drive a stark contrast between those who have set up just kind of using God's word as kind of hucksters of the word. I mean, they, they're in the gospel for what it can give them for what it provides them, either monetarily or through, through their, their reputation or whatever. And so he says, look, you need to understand, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. Paul writes, and he never, notice he never dilutes the powerfulness of the gospel. Paul never kind of truncates things. He never tries to find a more accommodating approach to communicating the gospel. In some ways, it would seem that Paul has gone out of his way to make the gospel incredibly difficult. It's a hard word. You have to die to yourself. You can't live for Christ if you don't die to yourself. You have to be in submission to him. You have to confess your sins to him. He takes you broken or not at all. Our God doesn't specialize in whole and perfect things. He specializes in broken things. 
And it takes this confession of brokenness to draw close to him. So Paul doesn't specialize in accommodation, but he specializes in contextualization. Notice even here in this passage that he draws on something that they would have readily understood. And so we get the sense that as people of the word, as people of God, that we too have to engage in contextualization, that we have to be students of the culture, that you can't sit in some ivory tower uh, completely impervious and sealed off from the world, and then somebody says something about something that's happening in the broader culture, and you say, ha, I don't know about that, friend. If it hasn't happened since the good days of King James, there's no need to know about it. Right? How ridiculous is that? How, how off-putting is that? How far removed from having uh, the ability to engage in a conversation with somebody is that? As Christians, we should be the best students of culture because it is understanding and knowing our culture that lets us know how to respond and how the gospel has already responded to our culture. So on the one hand, we know his word, and on the other, we study culture so that we're ready to give a response, and we're ready to engage, so that somebody walks up to you and they say, oh, this is my history, and this is my baggage. What does your gospel say to me? What does your word say to me? We're not stumbling around. We're not lost in wayward. We're able to communicate a clear, winsome, powerful testimony of the gospel because we live it faithfully and we communicate it clearly. This is what Paul ultimately, how he ultimately describes himself. He says, we are men of sincerity. When he says something, we know that it's true. We know there's no duplicity about Paul. He's not putting on airs. There's no pretense. There's no false humility. What you see is what you get. He is a broken man, and he readily testifies to his brokenness. He has sins and struggles, and he's not seeking to hide them. He says he is a man of sincerity. Look at this. He is commissioned by God. If you are a Christian, you too have been commissioned by God to communicate the gospel. There is no home office that you can you can wait away in there's no kind of glory days of retirement where you can live it up you have been commissioned and engaged for gospel service forever until you draw your last breath and we should spend our lives our finances and our energy communicating his gospel he says in the sight of god we speak in christ in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That the whole manner of our engagement and our speaking would be that is flowing straight from God through Christ to us. That when lost people hear us communicate the gospel, they would have a sense that they have engaged with Jesus. They would have a sense of his love, they would have a sense of his mercy. They would have a sense of what it looks like to come and to know him and to live for him. Let me just hit us with a couple of points of application for our body. If we're going to take seriously God's word, 
I think I said this last week, I think there are two areas that, that are easier for us in terms of our identity here as Ridgecrest. And it's easy to grow in God's word. It's hard to do that in community. It's, it's easy to serve in things that don't cost you anything. It's hard to serve when there's sacrifice associated with it. And I would say service rendered to God is seldom easy, frequently unenjoyable, but always for his glory. God has gifted and called you to service. You need to be serving. But the area where we just, just flat out stink is in going with the gospel. This is difficult because it seems like to many of us that the other things begin to be less in the negotiable realm, but this for sure is one of those things that is fully negotiable. Communicating the gospel. Between now and Easter, we, we've been fasting on Mondays, and so corporately as a church body, I think it would be helpful for us if between now and Easter, you wouldn't kind of begin to think, I'm going to go share the gospel with everybody because i got news for you. not. Let me just go ahead and pop the bubble of disappointment. You're not going to do that. But you can share with one person. You can share with one person. Right now, where you sit, you can think and you know of one person who doesn't know Jesus. Man, you don't know if they've ever heard the gospel. You don't know if they've responded negatively to the gospel. But you likely know of one person who hasn't responded to the gospel. Begin to pray for that person. And then commit to speak to that person. I can tell you that if you feel inadequate to communicate the gospel I'm, I'm happy to meet with you. Any member of the staff, the elders are happy to meet with you to talk to you about how to share the gospel. Simply put, if you knew enough of the gospel to be saved, you know enough of the gospel to communicate it to someone else. But begin to pray for who that person is and commit to share with that person. Now, it could be, because we live in the Bible Belt, that you're going to share with someone who says, oh man, like, I already believe all these things. Why are you being weird? Why are you being weird? I just want some Cheetos. All I asked for was some Cheetos. This Cheeto is Jesus. If you don't accept him, you go in the trash can of hell. Right? <clears throat> That's neither winsome nor kind to Cheetos. But there's a decent chance you share with somebody that says they already walk with Jesus. Encourage them to walk in such a way that you can see it. Say, I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I wasn't aware of that. Man, can I encourage you to walk faithfully with Jesus? Can we read the Bible together? Can, would you go with me to go out to share the gospel with people? But ultimately, if, if that person says, I already know Jesus, then find somebody who doesn't. Maybe God was just finding out how big of a coward you are, and, and, and he, so he let you have an easy one the first round. So begin to kind of pray through that and, and think, God, who would you have me to speak to? And then pray that God would change our hearts. The hope for our community, the hope for the world, is not political. It's not socioeconomic. The hope for the world and our community is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we communicate the gospel, we're spreading his fame, the aroma of Christ. And so we have one point of application to begin to pray for this person or to speak to them. And we have one point of meditation, that we would pray 
that God would spread his fame through us by us listening and obeying. So our prayer is ultimately that God would change our hearts and burden us for the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father God, we pray that that you would help us to know who the one that we should speak to will be. God, help us to know what man or woman that you have put on our hearts. Help us to be found faithful. God, I know from from my heart and the hearts of those that I've spoken to, sometimes what we're faithful at is finding excuses and reasons why not to. Or finding people we think are closer to that person to speak to them. Help us to not be social networkers of the gospel, but help us to be those who communicate the gospel. So God, I pray that you would burden our hearts to be compassionate towards them, to love them. I pray that you would already be stirring and moving in that person's heart to hear your word. It is the role of your spirit. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Help us not to confuse our job with your job, but help us to be found faithful to the task that you have entrusted to us spreading the aroma of Christ from life to life, from death to death. Father, I pray for those this morning who, even in the hearing of this service, have yet to submit themselves to you. Maybe they've heard the gospel before but have never responded. God, that they would see in the gospel of Jesus Christ an open invitation to be forgiven, to be made whole, to come and to know Jesus. Father, we thank you for the ways you have moved in our midst and pray that you continue to do so as we turn our hearts towards you and worship you in song. And we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.